clearly what the pandemic illuminated is that while most conventional providers have talked about how scary it is to take on the risk that's associated with being accountable for cost and quality, what they were overlooking was the risk that is associated with working on a fee-for-service basis. I mean, fee-for-service is, <laughs> that's how they run a restaurant. Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original or value-added digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's show, our guest is Michael Abrams, co-founder and managing partner of Numeroff & Associates, a consulting firm that, quote, for more than 25 years, Numeroff's rigorous, structured approach has solved complex strategic and operational problems for clients in industries in transition. For the last 25 years, Michael has built a portfolio of strategy and business performance successes as an internal and external consultant to Fortune 500 corporations. Leveraging the corporate management experience he acquired prior to founding Numeroff, Michael has shaped the development of Numeroff's approach, including the firm's emphasis on innovative and realistic strategies for changing markets. Michael completed his doctoral work in business policy at St. Louis University and received his master's degree from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He co-authored Bringing Value to Healthcare, Practical Steps for Getting to a Market-Based Model, and his articles have appeared in more than a dozen leading business journals. So, Fred, with that introduction, over to you. Help us learn more about Michael's work at Numeroff & Associates. Thanks so much, Greg. And Michael, welcome to Pop Health Week. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's a pleasure to get you on. Why don't we start uh, first, give us a little bit of a sense of your background and what Numeroff & Associates does. Okay. So uh, for those of you that are not familiar with Numeroff, we work with clients across healthcare to develop and implement strategies uh, that enable them to adapt to the dramatic changes that are rippling across the industry. Our clients uh, include major community and academic provider organizations, Fortune 500 insurers and manufacturers of pharmaceutical and medical devices. Fantastic. And we've uh, talked to Rita a few times and obviously seen you folks at the Population Health Colloquium, which comes up again this fall, I believe. And each year for the past six, you've released a report called the State of Population Health, Sixth Annual Numeroff Survey Report, which I understand you also do with Dr. David Nash, the founding dean emeritus of the College of Population Health. Tell us a little bit about that report. So... Back in 2015, Numeroff and Associates partnered with Dr. David Nash, uh, who was at the time the, uh, the Dean of the College of Population Health at Jefferson, uh, to study the evolution of population health management in the US. So we developed an online survey that was designed to assess progress, challenges, and success factors in healthcare delivery organizations as they transition 
to population and health management with particular interest in year-over-year -year, uh, trends. The, um, the survey has targeted physician group executives or vice presidents and individuals working in U.S. provider organizations, including healthcare systems, hospitals, and academic medical centers. Uh, in the most recent administration, which was our sixth, we received uh, nearly 300 responses, uh, include, which included C-suite executives across the entire uh, U.S. in urban, suburban, and rural areas, as well as standalone facilities, small systems, and IDNs uh, that are for-profit, not-for-profit, government inst and government institutions, and academic and community facilities were all represented. Excellent. And so each year you brought in this data and these data and we're looking at this and, and every year I know David's talked about this a lot and everybody else. When's this sucker going to change? <laughs> and, and he's been sitting here for a long time. But I believe that the uh, that the, this survey once again showed minimal changes. Is that correct? Minimal changes as measured by the percentage of revenue for an institution that is coming through contracts that have some uh, upside and downside or some simply upside uh, potential. So, yes. So we're still seeing most players on the upside risk only side of that as is that today. Yes. Um, you know, the, the percentage of revenue that, that comes through pro, uh, contracts that have some uh, risk associated with it is pretty nominal for the for the overwhelming majority of our responding uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. And I know you also compare this over time to what the individuals projected they believe would happen, say two years down the road. And how did that compare? What they said was going to happen to what actually did. So what has happened this year, as well as in in recent years past, is that projections were far in excess of what the reality turned out to be. In many cases, our respondents are people who have responsibility for population health, uh, generally at the vice president or C-suite level, and they do have a serious interest in seeing population health proceed. And I guess I would say that their estimates of what's going to happen two years hence has consistently been more optimistic than what has materialized. Uh, we can get into the reasons for that later on. Mm -hmm. So how, obviously last year was uh, the year of COVID, which seems to be extending into potentially the two years of COVID. Um, how, how did COVID or did you sense any impact from COVID in terms of what they were saying or doing? You know, we, sit, we did see some subtle changes. Uh, we didn't see the some of the changes that we had expected we might, um, but the, the more subtle changes that we saw uh, kind of fall into the idea that the organizations that responded appear to be more receptive to selectively uh, adopting elements of population health. So, for example, the, the standout here is telehealth. As I think everybody knows, prior to the pandemic, utilization of telehealth had been marginal in most provider organizations. COVID dramatically changed that. 
when asked if they would make more use of telehealth post-COVID than they had before, 94% said that they would. So that's one change that we saw. Mm-hmm. When asked how likely they would be to implement more joint efforts with payers to apply population health practices, 70% said it was more likely. When asked how likely they would be to pursue more direct to employer contracts that include population health components, nearly 70% said that was likely. And, and finally, the fourth change that we saw was in home health, another service that demonstrated tremendous value as providers were forced to stand up new models of care. Mm-hmm. And so 64% of respondents said that their organizations are likely to expand their use of home health services post-COVID. So those are the changes they said they would make. Time will tell if they really make them. Absolutely. And I find it fascinating that we can sort of sit here today and say, hey, we've had this great success. People are using telehealth. But but in essence, it took a pandemic plus the opportunity to bill for it under fee-for-service medicine to get them to actually move in that direction. Do you see it similarly? Absolutely. It, it literally, almost literally was a gun to their head to use telehealth. That's what it took. And, and truthfully, I think that uh, the future of utilization in telehealth rests very heavily on what the reimbursement is and whether or not that, that is made permanent. Which points back to this whole concept of changing the reimbursement methodology so that telehealth just becomes a natural part of doing it because you're going to do better having telehealth than because you're going to get paid more for having telehealth. Absolutely. Which is what you're trying to get to with this with this study and, and get people to consider. Right. Actually, we did a, a supplementary study on telehealth, and um, and I had I had executives tell me in one breath that it was a huge hit with their patients, and uh, uh, there's there's real demand there. And in the next breath, tell me, but the the subsequent use of telehealth depends almost entirely on what the reimbursement's going to be. Right. And, uh, and we've discussed that as well on the show in terms of how high that reimbursement should be. Is it more efficient or not than the others? But obviously, if you can peg the price at an office visit, you're probably in pretty good shape. Yes. So the other thing that was interesting, because, because this is something else we've talked about a bit, you know, there's this, been this move into capitation by primary care providers. You've got the OneMeds, the Aura Health, the ChenMeds, and the others are in Conviva around the country doing this capitation. Um, they seem to do better through the pandemic, as you point out, those that had revenue flowing in from capitation, yet it doesn't seem like that made an impact on other facilities or systems considering capitation going forward. That's, that is a surprise to us as well. I mean, clearly what the pandemic illuminated is that while most conventional providers have talked about how scary it is to take on the risk that's associated with being accountable for cost and quality, what they were overlooking was the risk that is associated with working on a fee-for-service basis. I mean, fee-for-service is, <laughs> that's how they run a restaurant. And, right. and with a restaurant, when the patrons stop coming, so does the cash flow. That's what happened here. We thought that would make more of an impression, particularly when 
it was clear that at least for those few organizations that had a serious component of revenue coming through um, a, a contract that, that did have up and downside risk, that they continued to get their per member per month checks in the mail. And, uh, and everybody else was sitting there wondering what, how are they going to pay the bills? So we did expect that we would see um, more impact from that situation, and we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. So is this sort of a sense of the healthcare system just um, taking a seat and saying, look, we're, we're in this fee-for-service world, we're going to just sort of stay here? Well, I think you need to take step back and see it in context. First of all, to to move into the world of uh, accountability for cost and quality and and to get away from the fee-for-service mindset is a tremendous leap. An awful lot of organizations simply cannot seem to make that leap. And, and so they, they're clinging very tightly to the model that they know, even though it's a dying model, even though the margins that are available to them in that model, I think, have been shrinking for years and will continue to do so. And yet, this is what they know, and they're afraid of what they don't know. And that gets to the part of the report where you talked about the barriers to, to, to making this move, with the top one being potential threat of financial loss by moving to the new model. I think the second was difficulty in changing the organization's culture. Third, unsure of when to make the transition from the current model. And the fourth one, interesting as well, difficulty in modeling the cost of care across the continuum. So given those four areas, do you see any groups actually within a subset of your population saying, hey, we can do this, we can do it well, and we're moving forward? There are isolated uh, standouts among the respondents, and some organizations have as much as 40 and 50 percent of their revenue coming through contracts that involve, uh, you know, more of a population health value-based approach. But they are relatively few and far between. Uh, I, I think you saw in the report that this fear of financial loss is the leading issue and has been in in all six years of our administration. And it's a conundrum because what we found is that a lot of organizations have not made the investment in creating infrastructure that would enable them to give some predictability to and have some control over the financial consequences of clinical decision-making. And so things like building care paths or providing physicians with feedback on what their average case cost is relative to their peers or having a process for dealing with physicians who are cost or quality outliers Those are things that I think are very scary for many executive teams, and they don't do it. And because they don't do it, they have no line of sight to what are the costs that are being generated by clinical decision-making. They have no predictability 
or control over it. And so given that situation, the fact that they're afraid of a financial surprise if they go at risk has a reality base, but they're doing that to themselves. They're putting themselves in a box. And if you're just tuning in to Pop Health Week, our guest is Michael Abrams, co-founder and managing partner of Numeroff & Associates, a consulting firm providing the strategy and structure clients require to bring new ideas and innovations to the world. For more information, go to www.nai-consulting.com. We've seen you know, various primary care groups, as I mentioned earlier, actually stepping into global capitation or or full risk or partial capitation, is that going to be the future, the groups that actually do this? And I sort of find it surprising given the fact, as you point out in your study, that so many of these physicians are actually owned by the organizations. They're employees of them, yet they still don't do what you've talked about or are able to implement those systems. Is it going to be some of these outsiders like groups like that that make the move, or is that always going to be a little fringe? No, I think it's going to be the outsiders that that don't bring this traditional mindset. There's there's an issue that has to do with the clinical administration, administrator boundary. You know, historically, um, in in hospitals, there was an understanding uh, between clinicians and administrators. You play on your side of the line. I'll play on mine. If it involves clinical decision-making, don't talk to me about it because you're not a physician. And even if you are, you're not a clinician in this situation. You're an administrator. It is none of your business. And that is part of what keeps uh, the C-suite and management in hospitals from addressing issues like let's standardize treatment of at least a, a handful of um, expensive procedures. Uh, that has become a real barrier, but it's not a barrier when you get outside of traditional healthcare provider organizations. And so, you know, United Healthcare is the second biggest employer of physicians in the country behind the VA. And they don't, they don't know about that clinical administrative barrier. Okay, these are people, more just more people that work for them, and they're going to have some control and predictability over the costs that they generate. Mm -hmm. In terms of, Michael, the pressure to make this change, obviously it doesn't seem like it's been enough, but we've had companies like Walmart set up these centers of excellence and then limit where they're sending people and put those into unique contracts that may include quality measures or cost measures and things like that. Is, are, the, are the employers going to drive this? Is that beginning to resonate in terms of changing behavior? There's a great deal of pain out there among employers because uh, that line item that is healthcare insurance is killing them. And there is a real demand for a better way. I think that some of the challengers like Walmart, CVS, will make a difference here. And, and some of the other players, uh, the, uh, the investment firm-backed, hedge fund-backed uh, roll-ups uh, that, that are taking a um, capitated approach are going to prove to the industry 
that this is doable, that it is superior, and that they can make money at it. And that will convince some conventional players that they ought to give it more of a try. Mm-hmm. I know in the in the um, towards the end of the uh, study, you pointed you pointed to CMS directly and said that's the place that should be driving this, that can drive this. Do you get a sense they're going to move that direction now? You know, you need to try and and see between the lines of what they say versus what they'll do. I I don't feel yet that this administration has committed itself one way or another. They they took a very limp approach to implementation of transparency rules that had been passed in the prior uh, administration. I don't know where that stands right now. It seems to have been pushed off the front pages. Uh, but that is, you know, in, in as much as it's already been tested in the courts. And there's, there's really no nothing else to do but enforce the rule. We'll have to wait and see how serious they are. They've backed off transparency in pricing as pertains to payers, mm-hmm. uh, giving payers another six months to get used to the idea. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. The problem is that healthcare delivery employs a huge portion of the population. And in many localities, those are all voters. And uh, in most of those localities, the the CEO has the local congressperson on their speed dial. So there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance to change. Yeah, I think, Michael, that's a great point. It gets back to this a couple of years ago. I remember hearing somebody say, coming out of the West Coast, you know, we no longer look at that hospital on the hill as a great job maker or a job creator. It's not the golden mech up there creating this workforce because the work is so dang expensive, we're essentially taxing the community. Has that thought process sort of diminished? Oh, I don't think so. There's an awareness of it. But the AHA and the AMA wield a great deal of power in this situation, much more so perhaps than they should. Mm-hmm. One of the other areas, Michael, that I found interesting, which actually might be some good news, but again, the question is how much is this driven by fee-for-service or paying for it, was you went into social determinants of health and looked at the relative changes of the organization's willingness to use those services or begin to access those services over time, and it's gone up fairly considerably. Well, as you might expect, uh, one of the, the real blowout uh, changes that we did see had to do with telehealth and the number of institutions that own their own telehealth operation. But there were other changes that were associated with uh, SDOH. Um, Many more organizations are making referrals or working with community partners in the area of housing and and food insecurity and related kinds of issues. Yeah, I noticed, for example, in food pantries, it went, in terms of increasingly partnering with these organizations, it went from 28% in 2016 to about 40%, you know, this past year. A nice jump there, also a nice jump in terms of accessing transportation as well as housing community development. So it's good to see that. The question then becomes, I think, as, as everything we throw at the, at the system is, is there a CPT code for it? Or am I going to do it as part of a bundle payment? So I, I wonder how far they're going to go until they say, hey, when are you covering this as more than, say, the chronic care management code or something like that? 
Well, Medicare is already covering transportation mm-hmm. issues and and you know the the traditional providers are more than comfortable uh, utilizing or creating more opportunities for services just as long as somebody will pay. Mm-hmm. So as we think about this and over time, obviously, people like David have have started when we talked to him almost banging his head against the wall. You know, when is this going to change? When is this going to change? Are you? Do you, you've done this now six years. Are you feeling like we're going to get somewhere, Some th- something's going to click, or is this just going to be an ongoing sort of dragging process? I think an awful lot depends on what the administration chooses to do. CMS is the only payer, the only stakeholder, really, on the scene that has the market power to um, arbitrarily make something happen. And what it's been doing over the last decade, uh, CMMI has been introducing uh, any number of models, opportunities from their point of view to enable traditional providers to put their toe in the water, see if they like it, and if they like it, move more into the population health realm. Problem is that this, this coaxing uh, hasn't really worked and largely because the old model is still available for them to cling to. Mm-hmm. As long as that remains the situation, that strategy is just not going to work. So it's up to CMS, CMMI, to enforce a change on the industry. They have the market power to do it. The question is, do they have the will? Do you think the, um, as you consider these hospitals and healthcare systems, is there any one area based on your survey you think they should focus on or begin to start to do to make that transition more comfortable? Is it an education process? Is it setting up better analytics and systems? Is it working with your physicians? Where might they go to start? You know, hospitals have made a number of infrastructure changes to improve quality. And so they have started to more consistently, let's say, have follow-up phone calls with patients after discharge to make sure that they understood the discharge instructions, right? They're, they're, they've instituted processes to ensure that a discharged patient has an appointment to see their provider within a reasonable period of time. These are common sense kinds of steps that should have been there all along. And we have seen over the six years we've done the survey, more attention to to building infrastructure to make sure that these kinds of practices happen. I think that's why hospitals are feeling a bit more confident about their ability to uh, deliver above average quality but their confidence in, the, in their own organization to control cost is still not good. And it's still not good because, as I said earlier, the infrastructure that would enable them to do that has simply not been built. So in terms of what needs to change, I think the key is that administrators, administrations, need to realize that they cannot have any predictability or control over the cost of care if they don't have some visibility into the clinical decision-making of their physician staffs and have some collaboration about what that should look like, what makes the most sense, what's the most cost-effective way to proceed. They can't afford to leave all physicians to do 
what it is they think they want to do, uh, each of them an island to themselves. So in essence, just a few short minute we have or so, we've achieved the double aim. We're working on improving the, the health of the population and improving the experience of care, but haven't been able to impact the cost. <laughs> that kind of sums it up. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Michael. It's been a pleasure. A great report, the State of Population Health 6th Annual Numeroff Survey. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure, and thanks, Fred, for inviting me. Appreciate it. And back to you, Greg. Thanks, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Michael Abrams, co-founder and managing partner of Numeroff and Associates, for his time and generous insights today. For more information on Numeroff and Associates, follow on Twitter via at NAI Consulting and at Rita, R-I-T-A, Numeroff, N-U-M-E-R-O-F, respectively. And to learn more, go to www.nai-consulting.com. And finally, if you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice and do follow us on Twitter via at Pop Health Week. Bye now.